So, any questions? You were speaking this morning about learning and why we learn and the reasons so that we can become happy. And in line with scholastic work and whatnot, I can understand how learning spirituality is most important and it's the root of all of our happiness, Krishna consciousness. Um, what about uh, grammar and mathematics and whatnot? Relative knowledge and absolute right. knowledge. And, and, and activities that might not, that aren't directly involved in Christian consciousness, like myself, I, I know what I do is like, could be far removed, you know. <laughs> so. Basic idea is that knowledge, as they say, often sets one free. So, with knowledge comes freedom. And, um, this is true. In the relative world, and it's true from absolute uh, consideration. So there's relative knowledge and there's absolute knowledge or conclusive knowledge. And in either case, knowledge is uh, liberating to an extent. Of course, at the same time, ours is a doctrine of, of love, not a doctrine of knowledge. But there is knowledge within love, and kind of a essential knowledge. When you love, then you know what to do. There's no more questions to be asked. In the Gita, in the ninth chapter, right in the center of the book, where you might hide something, Krishna has hidden the secret of the text. Begins that chapter by saying, Raja Vidya, Raja Guhyam. He tells Arjuna, I'm going to give you now the Raja Vidya, the highest knowledge, the king of knowledge. Raj means king. King of knowledge, and it is Rajavidya, it is the king of secrets. The highest knowledge is the most secret, at the same time, hidden. And when he concludes that chapter, what does he say? He says, And this is the highest knowledge, and it's secret. He's saying that bhakti, that love, that is the end of knowledge. That is the king of knowledge and that is the most secret of all secrets. Manmana, he says, become my devotee. Manmana, madbhakta. Think of me, become my devotee. Madhyaji, make sacrifice for me. Mam namaskuru, offer your namaskar unto me. It's simple. You say, that's the king of knowledge. That's the end of knowledge. That's a simple thing. Yes, this will afford such freedom. If we are to say and analyze that knowledge is that by which one is set free, then however free one becomes by the knowledge that one gains, we will be able to evaluate how high the knowledge is. The higher the freedom, the higher the knowledge. Right? Some people say that Mahagyan and Bhakti are ultimately the same. But they are jnanis who say that. They say it like that. We say something similar, but we have a different idea. They say that bhakti culminates in knowledge. Therefore, bhakti and the highest knowledge are the same. But we say that knowledge is within bhakti. Not that bhakti culminates or comes to an end. In the bhakti of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, then what do we find? If knowledge is that which sets us free, then as I say, the more freedom we have, we can 
determine how high the knowledge is. And here we find the freedom to interrelate with the Absolute that is uh, unprecedented, such freedom. This is the Vrindavan standard. We are all under rule, under law, to some extent, and this is all crossed over by this knowledge, this kind of bhakti. And Krishna is conquered by that. That is a whole Rathayatra that we're celebrating. As I said earlier, the king ran off with a commoner. That is Rathayatra. The king ran off with a common person. That's big news. Royalty, Jagannath, has run off with a village girl. Usually the wife will come to live at the uh, house of the husband. But Jagannath has gone to the house of Radha. <laughs> He's left Jagannath Puri and gone to Vrindavan. And we know about this from Gauda. Sometimes this uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's name has been spelled G-O-R-A. G-O-R-A. Gauda. Special spelling. It means Govinda, Radha. The two in one. And Govinda means the enjoyer. Who gives pleasure to the senses. This is the Govinda. He's the enjoyer. Only enjoying. And Radha means what? She is the giver. Radha means to give, to worship, Aradhana. So you have the giver and the taker combined. Supreme taker affords one the capacity to be an unlimited giver. You need that. You need to find that center that can take completely if you are to give completely. You need the spirit of giving without expectation of gain, but you have to know where to repose it also. And everyone can take fully from you, even if you want to give fully to them. Therefore, there's so much emphasis in our sect on the ontological position of Krishna in relation to all gods and goddesses. We want to help people locate the center, Govinda, the supreme enjoyer. He has nothing to do but enjoy. He doesn't even have the work of God. He doesn't have to give any blessings, even. He can ignore you if he likes. He's the supreme enjoyer, and she the supreme giver. She's on our side. She's bringing him to us. Radha brings God down to the common people. So Gaura, he has shown what is this Ratiyatra, and that is the highest knowledge. Bhakti prevails. And such freedom, knowledge gives freedom, so see the freedom that she has to deal with him. Ties him up with a rope, drags him off of his throne through the streets, and anyone can touch him. Who do you think you are sitting on that throne? And many people think different things. Who is Jagannath? He's a very peculiar deity. All types of sects, religious sects and non-religious sects, have been engaged in the worship of Jagannath. Even the Buddhists, Tantric Buddhists, also see Jagannath as one of their deities. Advaitins and Ganapatins and so many types. All seeing Jagannath. He shows a different face to different people. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu 
saw, when he looked at him, he saw Shamsundar. Drew that out from him. Krishna, Govinda. And he knew, you belong to the people, not sitting up on a throne like that. You're one of us, commoner. God is not removed from the people in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. He comes amongst them. He comes amongst the common people and makes their life uncommon. Most uncommon. Because it looks common, but it's not. There is nothing extraordinary about Krishna Leela. It may sound a little different to you because you live in San Francisco or Warsaw or someplace. So Vrindavan seems very different. It's not urban, that's true. It's rural. But just common things are taking place there. Nothing overtly extraordinary. In the Prakat Leela, some things happen because people come from outside. Some influence comes from outside. Some demon comes and then something wonderful happens, but people don't take note of it. So ordinary life is much fuller than we realize. We try to add something to it, we try to move away from it. This is karma and gyan. Mahaprabhu says, don't move, stay right where you are. Stane stitam shutigatam tanuvan manovi. Stay where you are. Nothing to add, nothing to subtract. Just adjust. Adjust the vision. Adjust the picture, the angle of vision. That's all. So when he comes amongst us, as a commoner, it makes the common life uncommon. It means it makes it special. It sheds light on the true nature of reality. Fascinating. Every aspect of it is mystical, wonderful. So this kind of knowledge, which Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has given, bhakti, this affords this kind of freedom. Freedom to tie up God and drag him off of his throne with a rope of prayam, to bind him, capture him, to rule over him by love. So this, Krishna says, this is the highest knowledge. That we should pursue, it doesn't cost anything, very easy to do. And if you have no other education, but you have this education, then your life will be perfect. These cow people, this is the idea. They're cow people. They don't have an education. They're lacking in so many things that from a material point of view, people think that they need in order to be successful. They're lacking all these things. But what do they have? They have him. And how do they have him? Because they have love for him. Place is sometimes described as, as if it is extraordinary. That uh, palaces made of gold and uh, diamonds and so forth. All such descriptions, if we pay attention, what do they say to us? That all these things, they are whatever you could want materially, you will have there. You will not miss anything and it will not hold any charm for you. People hear there's the touchstone there. If you touch any metal to it, it will turn to gold. It can fulfill all desires. The cows, kamadenu, but milking them, you can get whatever you want. The trees, you can pick from any tree, anything you want. So common people will think, we should go there, we should go there. <laughs> they get some attraction. But the teaching is that the people there, they're not interested in anything. That's what's extraordinary. They're not interested in anything but loving Krishna. So what is the wealth in that? What kind of freedom is there? So, if we have this knowledge, then what is the need for any other knowledge? 
That, in one sense, is the teaching, so that we don't waste our valuable time in so many pursuits, in pursuing perfect happiness through the acquisition of imperfect knowledge. Imperfect knowledge means the knowledge of how to acquire temporary things, things that don't endure. And imperfect knowledge means to uh, discover means to control the environment. The environment appears to be unfriendly, so we want to control it so that it becomes friendly. So, if we put this bhakti in the center, then the impetus to pursue relative knowledge, which from an absolute perspective is ignorance, then that diminishes, right? Nonetheless, we have to be practical in our pursuit. And so, there's some place for relative knowledge. There may be at some point. But that, in the context of pursuing absolute knowledge, then it will be harmonized. So the teaching is not that you should spend your time acquiring relative knowledge. It will never set you free, really. Relatively speaking, it will. If you get college education, you can earn more and work less. Freedom. Right? You'll be able to earn more and work less hours. So the principle holds true. that Knowledge sets you free. We just want to see Evaluate knowledge by how free it, it makes you. If you are free to relate with the Absolute in such a way that he becomes conquered by you even, then what kind of knowledge is that? And if our life is centered on pursuing that, and in the context of that, then everybody has some license to eat, to find some shelter. Even the monk has to beg to get some food. But for what? To go on with this higher pursuit. That is the idea. So you harmonize it the acquisition of relative knowledge and learning and so forth, which is for what? It's for sustaining your body and mind, giving your life some material balance and harmony. But to make that an end unto itself, that is folly. It will not endure this sense of self. You were sitting on death row. Still you eat something <laughs> while you can, but you don't have a big appetite on death row. This is the idea. <laughs> Something like that. It would appear to be quite crazy. That's not for celebrating. But there is news. There is cause for celebration. That's the other thing. Because death is only a perception. Death is a perception. And it's a problem based on our skewed perception that comes from attachment. If you get too close to a thing, your perception of it becomes skewed. You follow? You get too close, you can't see it for what it is. You have to stand back. If you're too close to a thing, if you have a bias for a thing, and you cannot think objectively. So that is our problem. Attachment, bias, it gives a skewed perception. And in that skewed perception, there is something called death, and it's a problem. It's a problem because we are attached. And if you're not attached, which is a result of looking at the whole fair in a particular way, then there's no problem, right? Death is not a problem. So by philosophy and the application of that, the right philosophy, then you can conquer death. Not that the body won't go through those phases, but what's actually taking place, that knowledge will be there, and you'll be free from death, free from the unknown. Isn't it the problem? It's unknown. I mean, taken from what I have staked out as my homeland, taken away to who knows where, maybe nowhere. This is the sign of ignorance, attachment. 
because everyone is in pursuit of enduring happiness. We are attached to temporary things, non-enduring things. That is ignorance. We're pursuing enduring happiness in relation to things that don't endure. This is a folly. How can you expect to be happy? And in the context of that, there is the perception of death. So, depending on where we live, what is our uh, context, socially and so forth, then maybe some place for learning, gathering relative knowledge, how to read, how to write, arithmetic, my worst subject. But uh, it's a place for that. We have our math also in Bhakti, Vedanta. It is Bhakti Vedanta, devotional Vedanta. So underneath, behind the love of Bhakti, there's a math, just like behind art, there's math. Behind music, there's math. So you have to do your math. We can talk about the highest ideal of love, love of Krishna, in charming and poetic way, and people will be attracted, but we have to talk about the math also. To do that, to do that kind of work, that sadhana, sacrifice. But it is, of course, sadhana of bhakti, not a separate sadhana. But it is an informed love. So, under the ground of that love is knowledge. And naturally, then, there is renunciation. As I said earlier today, if you take the seed of bhakti, which is shraddha, comes from the guru, that kind of faith in this ideal, and put it in your heart. It's a seed of a tree of love. The fruit of the tree is love. But what happens when you put the seed in your heart and you water it with hearing and chanting about Krishna? What happens? What's the first thing that happens when you water the seed in the ground? Breaks open. Hmm? Breaks open. And what happens? Life comes out. Roots come down, right? You want to go up. The first thing that happens is roots go down. So that means you get a firm foundation in the nature of being and build love on top of that. That means the half face of love, the first face of love, the abstract expression of love is detachment. The bhakti tree has its roots in detachment. Metaphorically speaking, Krishna's Kaviraj described the bhakti lata, the tree of love. And the the pal is the prem, prem pal. The fruit is love. And in its description of this tree, there were nine roots. And all these nine roots were nine principal sannyasis of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's entourage. Heavy, heavy fellows they were. Mahaprabhu was a sannyasi, but he was only 25 years old. Some of you have been 25. You know, it's a little bit lightheaded time. Can be. He was a sannyasi. Such a sannyasi he was, that 50, 60, 70-year-old men who were the roots of the tree, they were frightened by his bairagya, by his detachment. Two sides. Love flowing from him like, like a waterfall, falling over in love, drenching himself and people around him with tears. Body becoming transformed into something indiscernible. Transformations of the body in ecstasy. We can experience a little bit hair standing on end, tears, trembling. You may change colors. All these things, hundreds of times, thousands of times combined. 
this kind of love just indescribable, even frightening in its appearance. The character, Charit of Prem, Adbhut, is wonderful. Chamatkar, this causes wonder. Outside it looks, Bhaya Bisha Jwala Hoi, looks like poison, but Bitare Anandumai. Inside it is Ananda. He's weeping and falling and getting up and falling. Who wants to be like that? <laughs> you will think. Looks a little shocking. But if you trace it out, what it is, philosophically, this is what the Goswamis did. They traced it out, what it was. In so many books they wrote to explain that, to make it accessible, to show how attractive it is. This is the Prem Fall love, beyond explanation, practically. Still, they explained enough that we could become attracted to pursue it. But that love, in ecstasy, was also grounded in detachment, such that these older sannyasis, they were shocked to see Chaitanya Mahaprabhu sannyas. Paramananda Puri was the most senior. Mahaprabhu treated him like his own guru, touched his feet. Any advice came from Paramananda Puri, Mahaprabhu would take it, except once. When was that? Mahaprabhu was invited for lunch. He tasted the rice. He said, hmm, where has this rice come from? Then the reply came, Chotaharidas brought that. He got it from Malini Devi. Mahaprabhu finished his lunch and he said, tell Chotaharidas never to come again. Sannyasis were shocked at this. He had gone to a lady's house. He was a renunciate. He had gone to a lady's house to beg rice for Mahaprabhu. She was an elderly lady and a great devotee. There was no impropriety there. But Mahaprabhu was so strict about this in the context of the culture and so forth. And Paramananda Puri approached to plead the cause of Chotaharidas. And Mahaprabhu said, if you want to talk about this, then you'll have no one to talk to. I'll be gone. I'm leaving. Paramananda Puri, you're trembling at the standard of Mahaprabhu's bairagya. After all, at 25, to be renounced at all is an extraordinary thing. So, point is what? That this love, bhakti, is grounded in renunciation. It's not that we cultivate renunciation and then we get love. You cultivate love and automatically renunciation and knowledge will come. Janayati yashu bairagyam gyanam chayarohoitukam. You take the seed of bhakti, given by the guru, and you sow it in your heart. Let it be watered by hearing and chanting, good instruction and so forth. And then, first thing that it will show is roots going down, detachment. That will show up very quickly. So this is informed love. And in the end, then, we think renunciation is a big thing. If someone is very renounced, then we'll be very inspired by that. Oh, he lives in the forest. He never sleeps. If he does, he sleeps on a bed of nails. He doesn't eat anything but leaves that fall from the tree. We'll be very attracted to that kind of aisharya, majesty, opulence. But he or she may have love and we might not even notice it. Actually, it's hard to see. It's secret. Rajavidyam is Rajaguyam. The king of knowledge is the most secret of secrets. Love tends to hide itself as everyone cannot appreciate. It has its language of its own. So point is what? When that tree grows, tree of love, 
and the fruits are there. Fruits are in the top of the tree, and look at the difference between the root and the tree, and the fruit. Right? Renunciation is in the background. There, it's so far in the background, it's underground, you don't even think about it. But the fruit, that is getting all attention, everything, all attention going there. What is the difference between a fruit, a mango, and a root of a mango tree, <laughs> in terms of utility and so forth? The renunciation of itself means to go underground, that's all, to hide, to hide from the world. But Mahaprabhu was teaching it to enter the world with a different angle of vision, enter the world, but change your angle of vision, not hiding from anything. You may have to step back a little bit to see it for what it is. And then to understand it properly, enter in. And Vishvam Purnam Sukhayate, the whole world becomes a place of happiness. Otherwise, from the point of view of knowledge, there's a place of misery. As I say, it's people pursuing, enduring happiness in relation to things that don't endure, so they're miserable. But if you step back and see, how would renunciation come about naturally? If you're waiting in line in the grocery store and someone drops a $10 bill in front of you, then if you're an honest person, you'll say, oh, it's a $10 bill, but you have no interest in it. Why? Because, you know, it belongs to that other person. If you find it in the parking lot, then you'll think, must be mine. <laughs> you don't go in every car and say, did you drop $10? But if you know the owner, then immediately you become detached if you're an honest person, right? Renunciation comes by knowledge of the true proprietor. So bring Krishna in the picture. He is Govinda. He is the supreme proprietor, enjoyer, the center. The center is the enjoyer. And everyone giving to the center. A fellow interviewed me the other day and uh, he had been reading my books. He had some question about this idea of a spiritual form and so forth. And he had misunderstood it to be the description of the subtle material form and so forth. So I was explaining that. And I made the point to him that what is the problem? What is wrong with individuality? People think non-duality means no individuality. No, non-duality means, first of all, it means no false duality that's born in the mind based on sense perception. Hot, cold, good, bad, happy, sad, your happies are my sads, your hot, maybe my cold. To transcend this imperfect picture gathered by the senses that inform the mind that makes a decision. Happy, sad, good, bad, hot, cold, and so forth. To transcend that, that is one thing. And then there's the nature of being a unified, non-dual, that we say. Reality is non-dual consciousness. That's fine. But does that mean there'll be no individuality? But you would think if there's individuality, then there'll be duality. But no, why? Why is that? If you have a pond, a still pond, and you take a stone and you throw it in the pond, what will happen? It will create ripples, right? But it's beautiful. And they all go concentric circles, right? There's math to it, okay? but it's beautiful. But if you take another stone and you throw it in another place, then what will happen? Then there will be a clash, right? But if you take two stones and you throw them in the exact same place, three stones, four stones, 108 stones, what will happen? They'll all be harmonious. From still, it's still, there's something nice about a still pond, but when beautiful ripples 
with some variety, then it has more attraction even. So we can throw a thousand and eight stones all in the same place exactly. So then you can have thousand and eight stones or more. Thousand and eight individuals, unlimited individuals, all centered in the same place. Then you have what? You have a unity that has a variety to it that does not compromise the unity. This is Advai Gyan Tattva. If in the name of unity we wanted to have the lake and do away with the stones altogether, <laughs> ourselves, so many individuals, we have nothing to contribute? Are we an illusion? No. Gauda's teaching. We have something to contribute. There's a center, Govinda. And there's Aradhana. There is movement in relation to that center. And what kind of movement is it? It's worshipable movement. Giving movement. Movement for taking. Well, that is a problem. But worshipable movement, following the mood of Radha, this adds something. We have something to contribute to reality. We should not be abolished. We're criminal, no doubt. We're taking. This taking, exploiting tendency that is our criminality. Do we have any real life? Is there any proper life outside of jail? Giving life. If everyone is a taker, so we do away with them in the name of unity, then what? It's rather a static idea of unity. We speak in musical language of harmony. Is it one note? No. The more notes, then, but harmonized, the more attractive it becomes, the more charm it has. What is the meaning of unity if there's nothing to be unified? So, individuality becomes beautiful when reposed in the center. So this is bhakti. This is uncommon knowledge, then. Uncommon knowledge is not merely the antithesis of common knowledge. Common knowledge is the knowledge, relative knowledge, within the realm of duality, where we gain information in order to acquire or in order to control with the thought that we will become happy by that. But we cannot control everything, anything, really, practically. We all have to die, we cannot control it. What can we acquire? For a short period of time, something, and it will be taken away by time. So, still, as I say, in answer to your question, there's some place for relative knowledge in pursuit of the highest knowledge. Some place. How big? How much room? As much as is necessary to pursue this ideal. And that will be different for different people according to their conditioning. People are coming to this from different background of lifetimes and different karmic debt. And so it will be different for different persons. So we should be generous, not demand the same standard from everyone. Bhakti is generous like this. You can be householder. No problem. According to the Gita, to be a yogin, you have to be celibate. Sixth chapter of the Gita. But to do bhakti, you can be householder, have a big family. It's not a problem. Bhakti is very generous. So there's some place for relative knowledge. And that means what? That you must acquire some knowledge to act within the relative world in such a way that you feel full enough materially that you can embark upon a life of giving. Because if you don't feel full enough materially, and that will be different for different people, then how can you embark upon a life of giving? 
you're feeling too much needy yourself, right? So if a young man or a young lady feels a need of a relationship, emotional need, which is fairly common, <laughs> then bhakti affords that. You take that, yes? Then they feel whole. They need some economy and so forth, a little bit, and then they're honest people and interested in higher ideals, then they reach a certain standard, reasonable, and then they're in a position to seriously pursue a life of giving. So this should come into focus. Not that we can't do any bhakti until we have everything all set up. <laughs> no, no. We should start immediately. But there's some place within the context of that also for bringing the material side of your life into balance. As I said before, jump up and touch the stars. You should start with both feet on the ground. Then jump. If you start with one foot on the ground and you're out of balance materially and that is too much troubling you, then your chances for touching the stars and jumping will be diminished. You may land on your butt only. So there's some scope for that. Kamasenendriya pritir labo jiveta yavata jivasya tattva jignasu narto one should live human life, kamasyanendriya priti, not for love of the senses and sense objects, not for love of this. That is not love at all. That is only life of exploitation, mere shadow of love, a distortion of love. We should not live for that. But why should we live? Bhagavad says, jivasya tattva jignasu, because human life gives us the chance to inquire about the truth of the self. That's why it should be lived, for that purpose. And then in the context of doing that, this nice poem of Bhagavad also is explained, the implication of it is that we should not live merely for sense gratification, but we should live. To live you have to eat, right? You have to have a roof over your head. And you may need even some emotional companionship. You may need these things. So do those things for this, for Jivasya Tattva Jignasu, or inquiry, in the nature of the self, then they become harmonized. Then they don't become counterproductive. So they balance the relative and the absolute consideration like this. Do you follow? Some place for both. Body has some value, soul has some value. You weigh them on the scale. It goes like this. Soul is over here, <laughs> body is up. There's some place for that. We have it out of balance. I was once flying on an airplane from India to America and I was sitting and doing japa, nam japa of Krishna nam and a fellow next to me at one point, I was doing it quietly and, you know, to myself as japa is to be done and he turned to me and says, what is it about you that makes you have to do that? <laughs> he was just bothered by the fact that I would be doing that the whole trip. <laughs> what, why do you have to do that? So, I asked him, I was wondering the same thing about you. <laughs> what is it about you that makes you have to do all those things that you do? Drink, please. Water, please. This, that, the other thing. Book, try the television, try the video, try the movie, you know, try, try the music, one thing after another. Magazine, you know, take a magazine. What is it that makes you have to do all those things? You know, they said, lady wrote a book, it was a nice title. She said, don't just do something, sit there. The common English phrase is, don't just sit there, do something. 
You say to your kids, don't just sit there, do something. But if you become an adult, you should be able to listen to this. Don't just do something, sit there. Just be busy, no, you should sit and go within. So I said, I was thinking the same thing about you. What is it about you that makes you have to do all those things? Then I explained to him, so you talk about fanaticism. He says, it is fanatical, he said. The whole time you do it? <laughs> I said, yeah, well, we have to measure the value of one of soul or body, which is more valuable. What do you think? The Bible said something like what? Gain the world and lose the soul? Then? I never read it, but there's a saying like that, isn't it? What profiteth a man if he should gain the whole world but lose his soul? Nothing. No profit. And you can't gain the whole world even. Even if you could gain the whole world. Which would be at the loss of one's soul to be so ambitious, obviously, for acquisition. Then what do you gain? Nothing. If you gain the soul and nothing else, then your life is complete. Simple truths. So simple that they escape us. We should be realistic and evaluate the value of the body and acquisition of material assets. What is the value of that? Some pursuit for that, yeah, it has value. But how inordinate our lives have become. So much emphasis on the one side and the soul is starving. There's a conference in Monterey and Sham Gopal told me he could arrange for me to speak there. It's a conference of important people, and they have people come and talk on different topics, politicians and things like that. And one of the topics was, what is love and why are we so bad at it? He wanted me to speak on that. What is love and why are we so bad at it? They must know something about it to know that we're bad at it <laughs> already. <laughs> well, it has to do with this, confusion. We've identified with this uh, material surroundings and uh, think of ourselves in terms of American, Indian, black, white, man, woman and so forth and so this kind of identity is uh, such that uh, it gives us the impression that we have necessities, needs. If we don't eat then we will die so we have to go to work and be busy to meet those necessities. So a needy person is not in a good position to be a giver, and love is about giving. So if we come out from underneath that misperception, misidentification of need, that is really only the need of the shape in which the material elements have come to surround us, and it's all our attachments. We are our attachments, materially speaking. We are a father because we are attached to our daughter. We are a daughter because we have identified and attached with parents. Daughter becomes mother, mother becomes grandmother. Identity is always changing. We are our desires, materially speaking, our attachments. And the basic lesson of spiritual life is to slay our attachments. This is only the entry-level idea. And we should, as Sriman Mahaprabhu taught, slay our attachments in the context of becoming attached to that which is worthy of being attached to, that which is enduring. If we can develop raga for that, attachment for that, like the passion of a young girl for a young boy, if we can develop that kind of passion 
for truth, for reality. Nothing can get in the way of that. If you try to impede that, it will only accentuate it. So we shall, as he did, try to talk about that ideal in such a way that it arouses that kind of a passion for such, attachment even for that, attachment for giving, for sacrificing. This is wealth. What is the wealth of Golok? It is Prem, love. So it was a great uh, journey, great march, and you had to be practical in that. So you position yourself, relatively speaking, in terms of acquisition of knowledge, such that you are in a better position to pursue a life of giving. That's all. And it will be different for different persons. We speak about giving and such a high life, that I say, tying up the Absolute with ropes of love and all these things. <laughs> this is a very high thing. So we have to go this step by step. We should be happy to be on the path. Such an ideal, such a high idea. I was saying, uncommon knowledge. It's not just the antithesis of the common knowledge, which is ignorance, the common knowledge. The common knowledge is that if I acquire something, I'll be happy. If I add something to my life, I'll be happy. So the antithesis of that is what? Detachment. The sum and substance of spiritual life that constitutes uncommon knowledge is not merely the antithesis of common knowledge. That's common also. you understand? That's not hard to figure out. But love, you see, that is uncommon. That is wonderful. That is mysterious. So Chaitanya Dev has posited this kind of metaphysic. What? The common knowledge is that by material acquisition one becomes happy. The antithesis of that, which is not uncommon in itself, is that by giving up, foregoing material acquisition, one becomes happy because how? Suffering is stopped. Because suffering is fostered by the ignorance of pursuing enduring happiness in relation to things that don't endure. So stop that. Stop suffering. But to stop suffering is not happiness. The antithesis of misery, or the other side of material attachment, renunciation, that's not uncommon. You can figure that out. You can follow me pretty easily. But if then we start speaking theologically about another kind of attachment, we say the names and forms are all here today and gone tomorrow. You get that? Okay. Now I'm talking about Krishna. You say you're talking about a form again. You just told us names and forms were here today and gone tomorrow. Now you want us to be attached to this form of Krishna. What are you talking about? That is another thing. Then we have to question, what do we even know about form? You think that form is limiting, right? Form is a limitation. It contains something. But it could just as well facilitate, right? The canvas and the pen give shape to the art that is in the heart of the artist. Make it accessible experienceable, relishable, and so forth. And what do we know about form? We think we know about form. We don't know about form. Form lends to stability, right? To give it a shape. If you have a liquid, it has no form, and you give it a glass, and it's contained. So form gives some kind of uh, like stability and uh, kind of sense of permanence and so forth. So what's wrong with that? Stability sense of permanence, we're actually pursuing that. 
But we have really no experience of form because everything is here and is moving constantly. There is no stability. We call this a material form, is it? Just constantly changing, transforming. So what experience even we have of form? That form, it would seem, has some of the qualities we are looking for. Stability, security, makes something accessible, shape. So there's form made of Brahman. After all, <laughs> what is making these material forms that we have, if we can call them such? What makes them? The consciousness behind them, right? You have consciousness, and that consciousness, its condition in relation to desire, which is ignorance, corresponds with the form that we have, life after life. What is giving shape to the material elements is consciousness. So if consciousness focused on matter causes matter to take shape, then why not consciousness focused on consciousness causes consciousness to take shape? That is Krishna. <laughs> to give a shape to love. That they may something other than some abstract idea only of no exploitation. That's contained within that. But it is more than that. Movement in this world is out of necessity. We call it karma. We have a perceived necessity, so we move. And we move by taking, and by taking, we owe. So we're in a, a web, a cycle, a circle, round and round, sangsara. Round and round we go. Circle game. So, should we conclude, therefore, that movement is illusion? And reality means to sit still forever? Why? Why not a different kind of movement that's not taking? That is Leela, then. Leela is movement of Brahman. Brahman is still. That's true. Brahman is still. Stable. The underlying ground of being. But in Gaudiya Vedanta, in that perception of reality of Sri Chaitanya, that Brahman starts to dance. Now, what that must be. Here we are. We are of the nature of Brahman. And when we are in relation to matter, matter dances. It moves. Right? All this movement in material life is just the sleeping condition of the soul. Do you understand me? The soul is asleep to itself and all this movement is going on. Now, if it's awake, do we think it will just sit still? Will there be any movement in Brahman? Brahman is stable, secure, immovable. That means it's not like material life, here today and gone tomorrow. You can bet on it. You can take it to the bank. It's not going anywhere. It's the ground of being. We come from there. We exist. Don't think otherwise. It appears that we come and go, come and go, or we just go. <laughs> Things come and they go, and they're gone. Scripture tells us, don't think like that. You exist. You are great. You are Brahman. There's only the beginning, teaching. Become still in relation to movement that is meaningless. But there is meaningful movement. So that is taught by Go, Gora, Gora. He is Govinda and he is Radha combined and teaching us. Making Brahman dance. Jagannath is Brahman. And he's dancing. Down the road. Drunk. 
drunk and intoxicated and falling over practically. They have to hold him up. Eyes are just dilated. You ever seen his eyes? They're big dilated eyes. He's been smoking or something. <laughs> He's been drinking the elixir of Radha's love. You become wide-eyed now. They carry him, carry him to the chariot, to the Rath. One person on each side. So many people on this side, so many people on this side. Big, heavy deity. Looks like they're just having trouble carrying him. No, he's drunk. That's what it is. He's having trouble standing up. They're not having trouble holding him up. So Brahman, intoxicated. This is some special kind of Shakti then. Internal Shakti. The very energy of Brahman itself. is Brahman is energetic and it has energy. This is we call Swarup Shakti. Antaranga Shakti, not Bahiranga Shakti, outside Shakti, Maya Shakti, but Antaranga Shakti, internal Shakti. And then in relation to that, Brahman begins to dance and take shape, not in the material world, not within matter, with the material form, form of its own, it's dancing. So he is the taker, Govinda, the enjoyer. Radha is the giving aspect of the non-dual reality, personified. And in relation to that, there's movement, dancing. This is Leela. So this is uncommon knowledge, is my point. It's not merely the antithesis of common knowledge. Common knowledge is we perceive difference when there is no difference. Hot, cold, happy, sad, good, bad. They're just perceptions of the senses and mind. What's hot for you may be cold for me, so what is it? Neither of these. So common knowledge is the perception of difference, and then the antithesis of that is there's no difference. But that's not uncommon. When you take difference and unity and you put them together at the same time, that's uncommon. That's like, what are you talking about? That's love. It is uncommon, mysterious, and impossible to explain. We try. This is the metaphysic of love, not of mere knowledge. That is the eradication of ignorance. So, achinta beda beda tattva. This kind of vedanta, simultaneous oneness and difference, a unity that fosters variety, a unity that fosters individuality that does not compromise the unity, and then it's really unity to unify. Sarva kalovidam brahma. What does it mean? It's a famous aphorism. Sarvam kolo idam brahma. Everything is Brahman. Everything is Brahman. What does it mean? Some people say, well, obviously, everything is Brahman. There is only Brahman. We say, no, everything is Brahman. There are so many things, and they are all Brahman. <laughs> they don't all go away. You're just looking at them wrong. <laughs> and all of this to be learned by dancing in the street. That's all. And singing. It is the conclusion of this, and it is the way to realize that. As much as we can understand it, then we celebrate singing and dancing. And what are we celebrating? This love story, as I said. A king ran away with a common girl. And if we look, what do we find? That girl is not uncommon. Not uncommon. We thought so. <coughs> but we felt... 
otherwise. So we don't need to go anywhere. Just change our angle of vision. This is the teaching. You follow? King ran away with a common girl. Who's the king? Jagannath. Who's the common girl? From the village. Radha. If a royalty marries a commoner, then it will be big news, right? But what do we find? Like in the story of, what is it, Prince Charles and Diana? She became, got more attention. Common girl, not uncommon. Or is uncommon. Common girl is special. After all, she has the power to take the prince from his throne. What kind of power lies there then? So, any other comments, questions, advice? Can we please start to actually pull the cards? Is that episode in the Huggington too? No. There's no card. <laughs> no ropes. The ropes are love. Well, I have heard at least that one version of the Ratiatra is that when they met him, I mean, the whole Ratiatra is to reenact that scene that apparently happened, that they started yeah. to pull and say, come to Vrindavan with us. That never really happened. Not according to the Bhagavad. You see, this story will be told in a thousand different ways. What is the origin of Jagannath? A thousand different ways. And if you study it, they're all saying the same thing. The same point is being made over and over again. The conquest of love. Absolute love. It can be told a thousand different ways. As long as the same point is made. And the more charming it is made, the more compelling it is, then the better it is. <laughs> so different devotees will tell it in different ways. Bhagavad tells it in one way. Krishna came, inhabitants of Vrindavan came from different directions. They met there. And he's told Krishna is in Dwarka. He heard about the love of Braj. He transformed. And a thousand different stories. They're not untrue. The devotees are giving shape to their bhava, their ecstasy, their realization of this. And they're describing their ecstasy, their realization of this. It's got a shape. So that shape is real. Why is it different, though? Did it happen this way or did it happen that way? You see, this is <laughs> how we try to limit the whole thing, bring it down to the realm of the mind and so forth. No. It's not a linear affair. It's happening in the heart of the devotee. He's realizing these principles and is giving shape to that. And speaking about it and seeing it, this is then becomes Leela. It's performed in that way, it was performed in this way. And that. The same thing is happening each time. You understand? Krishna is Jagannath and he becomes transformed and conquered by the love of the inhabitants of Vrindavan and Radha's love in particular. He becomes stunned. His arms get stuck, his eyes become wide. It's told in so many different ways, this story. Each way is true. Each one is saying the same thing. We think, he said it different here. No, you're gravitating towards the detail and taking it kind of in a literal and a... It's meant to make you less, um, how you say, um, more liquid, to melt your heart, make you more supple, more flexible more open. We are not open. We have very black and white understanding. We insist on that. Is it right or is it wrong? Well, is it black or is it white? Well, which is it? What can I tell you? It's both and neither of those at the same time. But no, this is the way the mind works. So, that's another reason for telling the story differently. 
help you get out of that, your mind. Well, are they just making it up then? If their heart is full of bhava, no, it's not. It's their experience. If you know the story, you know the purport, then you can tell it in different ways. It has a message. So Krishna consciousness is not just memorizing the details. And Radharani's dress is this color, and Krishna's wears this, and memorize all these things. It's more than that. They call them nectar, nectar people. They just get all the details. And how many gopis, and what are their different colors, dress, and this, and all that. These are just to capture your mind. But if you don't approach it right, it has the opposite effect. You just stay inside of your mind. Now you've got this really static idea of Radha and Krishna and the Leela. Therefore, somebody tells it a little differently. It's got it wrong. It happened exactly like this. It's meant to take you out of that prison where you've got to control everything, bring it in the fist of your intellect, have a grip on it. It's meant to tell you you can't. That should be the experience of reading Krishna Leela. It's just like you're exploding with, wow, this is just like beyond me here. It's unbelievable. It's just like, like you get it somehow, get it someplace in there. It's big. You want to make it small. And then have a whole bunch of information. Pretend we're Rasika. <laughs> this, is, this is not the idea. Yes? That's what they'll say about us. They'll say, the non-dualists will say, you're trying to make it small by giving it this form and these pastimes. And you're Mm-hmm. Corralling the absolute. Mm-hmm. Why are you doing that? No, you're making it bigger. You want to make it still, quiet, nothing going on there, no movement. We're giving life to Brahman. This kind of talk is giving life to Brahman, making him dance. And there's some place for what this is. Some people may do that, limited by their limited realization of what we're actually talking about. But if you understand it properly, then you cannot come with that argument. Form, is it limiting or is it facilitating? Is this chair as a form, is it limiting me or is it facilitating me? Right? Simple. It's facilitating me. I can sit here longer, talk longer, listen more. So form can give facility. Why does it have to limit? You want to make the absolute infinite, but infinite what? Ours is a very Catholic infinity. Infinite quality, infinite color, infinite form, infinite sound. Why infinite emptiness? How is that big? How is that spacious? What do you want? Space? What is big? Love is big. Affection is big. However small the space is, if there's love, your life is big. Right? You can live in the hollow of a tree if you have love. Right? So we're talking about Brahman in terms of Brahman being not just stable, the ground of being that doesn't move. <sighs> so you can like rest. Material nature has got you moving, running around, running around. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. The karmic debt has got us moving, moving, moving. <gasps> they call it in their own language, people call it a rat race. Right? Racing, racing. So Brahman is still quiet, there's some rest there. But is that the whole picture then? Infinite quietude, infinite rest, infinite movement, infinite beauty, infinite charm, infinite sound. This is not the highest ideal, this is the lowest common denominator in the spiritual marketplace. 
come to Brahman, to the ground of being, begins there, it doesn't end there. That everyone has in common. It's the lowest common denominator. The highest ideal of spiritual experience is the more finite, the more concrete the infinite becomes. That's extraordinary. The more concrete the finite becomes. The more an uh, in, in infinite complexity, infinite beauty, infinite form, infinite charm, infinite sound, as I say, beatific vision, and more. That is only shanta, shantaras, beatific vision. It's a Catholic term, but in shantarasa, and there is no attraction for the lila of Bhagwan. Just the form. That is bhakti also. And even that bhakti we are not interested in. What to speak of a doctrine that only employs bhakti for the end of knowledge and retires bhakti. Even shanta bhakti we have no interest in that. And there is no interest in the shanta bhakti in the lila of Bhagwan. So beatific vision, but beyond. So infinite variety. That's what we we're talking about. So that if you study the lila, we see that it's not limited. He does it this way one time, he does it that way. <laughs> and that's all described by devotees who taste that, experience that, and therefore explain it in different ways, just in different ways of talking. Yes, about the same thing, about which one cannot say enough. That is the idea. Speech cannot go there. Mind cannot go there. They return to Brahman. That's a fact. But that doesn't mean we cannot talk about Brahman. It means we cannot say enough about Brahman. So you say that, citing some other people, if you talk about the absolute with form you're limiting, then you come and listen. See who goes home first. Will I stop talking first? Or will you have to go home first? So I'm not running out of things to say about that. Where's the limitation? You say it's limiting. But we're still talking. And that monistic philosophy is that you should be quiet. There's nothing to say. They think that speech about the absolute is a limitation. Put a limitation on the absolute. Then you should be quiet now. That's your philosophy. You should be quiet. Yes? For a devotee who perhaps doesn't make a certain level of perfection in his life, in the next life, does he pretty much carry on where he was in sort of a mechanical way? No. So many of the benefits of your sacrifice and effort in sadhana in this life will accrue in the next life. You understand? Not exactly. All the benefits of your sadhana are not going to accrue in this life necessarily. So the next life they will accrue. You'll be born with a favorable wind. In this life you may have been born with an unfavorable wind, karmic burden and so forth. It made it difficult even to apply yourself in bhakti to one extent or another. Everyone has this experience. Still, some things you have desire and you have parabdha, karma. It's a problem. Parabdha doesn't always facilitate the desire. It's a struggle. If you develop also proper desires in relation to bhakti and so forth, then it will be cancelled out. So some point, if some work is going on in this life, the result will accrue in the next life. So it's not the next life you will be born exactly with the same situation. And No. You have favorable wind. It will be so much easier. So you're all ready to go and commit suicide now. So it will be easier in the, in the next life. No, don't do that. It's like you're investing money in the bank, so you don't get the results immediately. It will come later. The returns will come later. In the form of what? Facility to do service. 
and have taste and so forth. In this life, then you try to become, understand tattva. Next life you're going to get bhava. Take a little time and learn the math. Do the math. Next life you'll be an artist. <laughs> Something like that. You can do a little painting now, but... <laughs> the next life it'll look like, oh, he's just a... Wow, they're born with it. You just know how to paint. It's magical. You know, he had lifetimes of doing the math and practicing hard sadhana and so forth. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, Like that. So many lives. And thinking, what kind of people criticizing you? Criticize yourself, even. I want to sing, but I can only sing off key. Keep trying to sing. Next life you will sing like a bird. As if you were born to sing. We've talked for a while now. What time is our Arctic? Six or six thirty? Six thirty. Let's come for Arctic. Siman Mahaprabhu ki jai, Gauri Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai, Bhakti Vinod Paribar ki jai, Jai Sri Bhakti Vedanta Swami Prabhupada ki jai, Bhakti Raktakshira Dev Goswami Maharaj ki jai, Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasri Thakur Prabhupada ki jai, Gaur Bhakti Vinda ki jai, Gauri Premanand.